Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jangda. If you enjoy and benefit from listening to our podcast, please donate to Qalam by visiting supportqalam.com. We love being able to share this content for free with you, and your donation ensures that we are always able to do so. Each podcast we produce has tens of thousands of listeners, so the opportunity for gaining immense reward by supporting this effort is endless, insha'Allah. You never know who will be able to benefit from your contributions and donations. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillahi wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Insha'Allah continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as-seeratu nabawiyya, the prophetic biography. In the last few uh, sessions, we've been talking about the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet ﷺ, Hajjatul Wida'. So to again bring everyone up to speed, in the 10th year of Hijrah, the 10th year of the Prophet ﷺ's residence in the city of Medina, towards the end of that 10th year, which is essentially just literally months before the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, he performed the Hajj, he performed the pilgrimage. And of course, posthumously, it's referred to as Hajjatul Wida', the farewell pilgrimage, the farewell Hajj of the Prophet ﷺ. And the reason for that is very obviously because it was at the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, and also was the only Hajj performed by the Prophet ﷺ in, of course, uh, in accordance with the Islamic method of performing Hajj. <clears throat> a couple of things about this particular Hajj that also, aside from it obviously being at the end of his life, one of the things that also um, really establishes that as the farewell of the Prophet ﷺ, three things that I'll point to. Number one, when they started the Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ very explicitly said, خُذُوا عَنِّي مَنَاسِكَكُمْ Learn from me how to do the Hajj. Which is of course one of the most foundational statements of the Prophet ﷺ about performing Hajj. All the books of fiqh, all the books of hadith, when they talk about Hajj, they always talk about this particular narration, this hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said, learn from me how to do the Hajj. Similar to how he said, صَلُّوا كَمَا usalli Pray as you have seen me praying. So about Hajj he said, Look at me and learn from me. Watch me and observe me on how to perform your hajj. But then he continued on and he says, Because it is very likely that I shall not perform the hajj after this year. That is one you know, uh, reference the Prophet ﷺ made or one hint that he dropped. The second thing is, what we're going to be talking about today the sermon of the Prophet ﷺ, and we'll talk about the sermon very thoroughly in just a moment. But in the beginning of the sermon, the Prophet ﷺ says, "Isma'u minni ubayin lakum." He said, "Listen to me very carefully, so that I can explain things to you." فَإِنِّي لَا أَدْرِي Because I am not certain. لَعَلِّي لَا أَلْقَاكُمْ بَعْدَ عَامِي هَذَا فِي مَوْقِفِي هَذَا Because I am not certain, it is very likely that I will not meet all of you after this year 
and at this particular place. So he said that at the beginning of the sermon. That's again the Prophet ﷺ alluding to something. And again, not to take anything away from our discussion that we're going to have on the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ. But at the end of the khutbah, the Prophet ﷺ, he similarly says at the end of the khutbah that فَلْيُبَلِّغْ الشَّاهِدْ الْغَائِبْ or فَلْيُبَلِّغْ مِنْكُمْ فَلْيُبَلِّغْ الشَّاهِدْ مِنْكُمْ الْغَائِبْ Two versions. The Prophet ﷺ in one version he says that all those of you who are present should deliver this to those who are not present. Those of you who are present should deliver this to those who are not present. And again, that can be taken very generally because that's a responsibility regardless. Whenever you hear something good, the Prophet ﷺ said, Convey on my behalf even a single verse of the Qur'an that you have received from me, learned from me. So that could be a general injunction, but nevertheless, there, it is ominous to, to quite an extent that the Prophet ﷺ in the largest gathering of believers during his lifetime, at what can maybe be described, very quite possibly be described, as the most important and significant moment of his mission, his preaching up to this point. The Prophet ﷺ is making it a very explicit point to conclude by saying, let all of you go out from here and convey and communicate this message on my behalf. So there does seem to be, as we call it, figuratively speaking, a passing of the torch by the Prophet ﷺ, that you have to carry this message and this work and this religion on forward. So there are quite a few little things, um, you know, where the Prophet ﷺ is clearly alluding to uh, a finality. There is a sense of finality about this particular moment. Nevertheless, in, as I said before, in the last few sessions, we've talked about the journey of the Hajj of the Prophet ﷺ. How he prepared, how he left, how he traveled, arrived in Mecca, did the Umrah, stayed for a few days between the Umrah and the beginning of Hajj, and then how he started the Hajj again, and how they came to the place of Arafat, the day of Arafat, the main day of Hajj, like we talked about in the previous session, and the Prophet ﷺ there, he of course made the beautiful dua, some of them that we went through in the session previously. Now, as I had mentioned previously, the big, you know, aside from the dua in Arafat, which is the main component of Hajj, and you know, it would not be wrong to almost refer to it as the point of the Hajj, However, at the same time, one of the big moments of Hajj in general, but particularly the Hajj of the Prophet ﷺ, was his sermon, was his khutbah. And so I, we had not talked about it last week, and I said that I would like to touch upon it in the next session, dedicate the entire session to just discussing the khutbah. And as I said previously as well, if we went through this khutbah, line by line, which actually we're going to, but we're going to go through it line by line a little bit more, kind of with a summary. But if somebody decided to go into each particular line and extract from it and discuss therein all the different issues, all the different rules and regulations, all the different lessons, wisdoms, understandings, principles, ethics that come from every single word of this khutbah, that is something that would even uh, I'm convinced, 
a day-long seminar would still not be sufficient to cover it. Even a day-long study or seminar would not be sufficient. I had referenced previously that there are multiple works dedicated to simply expounding upon the khutbah of the Prophet ﷺ. One of those works is, uh, I was just looking at it earlier today, um, by one of the scholars um, that is over a hundred pages long. There was a, there's another work uh, compiled by another scholar where he again he discusses a lot of the different things that we can take from this particular khutbah and it's 150 pages long. So there is plenty of depth to go into, obviously. It's the Messenger Kalim. The Prophet said, I have been granted the gift of comprehensive speech. So when the Prophet would say one thing, it would have multiple layers to it at the very least. Nevertheless, we're going to go over it. The one note that I will give you, even though I will be going over a particular compilation of the khutbah as compiled by many of the scholars of hadith and seerah, however, one little note should be taken into consideration just for the sake of academic integrity and historical accuracy. For the sake of academic integrity, historical accuracy, I I wanted to bring to everyone's attention that... The khutbah, as we're going to go through it, the compilation of the khutbah, is essentially pieced together from dozens of different narrations. Now what does that exactly mean? What that exactly means is that over a dozen different companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, more than that in fact, there's hundreds literally, but nevertheless, Um, At the very least, looking at the main dozen or so narrations, different companions and different sahaba narrated different uh, parts of the khutbah. So it's almost as if, you know... um, You know, someone is is, uh, attending a lecture... I mean, that's exactly the example. But you go around the room and you kind of ask everyone, what did you learn or what do you remember? What did you learn? You know, you teach a class... Right, You go through a class with the students and afterwards you kind of ask them, what did you learn? What did you think? What do you remember? What did you learn? And you go around and different students share different parts of the lecture or different students share different realizations they had or different lessons they learned. And when you put all that together, you have a very rich collection of different thoughts, ideas, quotations right, from the actual seminar, the lesson. Uh, I don't want to give a trivial example, but just for the sake of understanding, there's a two or three hour long game, and then there's different highlights of the game, right? And the highlights, nobody listens to or watches a particular highlight of a game that's a minute or two minutes long, and just assumes that's the entirety of the game. There's this understanding that this person is, or this account, or this uh, TV channel is sharing a particular moment and a highlight of the game. Well, similarly, the companions, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, because they were listening and paying attention and trying to internalize, when they shared what they learned, a lot of them would share particular highlights, moments that really struck them. Or or they more so took the opportunity to share something they learned from the sermon of the Prophet ﷺ. And then secondly, there's also this particular 
a historical fact that can't be ignored, and that is there were over 120,000 companions, Muslims, believers, people that were present there. And obviously, you think about it, this is without the ability to broadcast. This is without the ability to be able to uh, relay sound over a very large area or region. And so a lot of times, it might have been that people were basically conveying onward something they heard. Or people were going to other people afterwards and said, what did he say over there? What did he say at this particular moment? And so in that sense, different people also had bits and pieces. But nevertheless, pieced all together, there is enough overlap. Like when you sometimes, you know, you look at a particular picture or photograph and you kind of, you know, you take uh, three photos of a particular landscape and then there's a certain amount of overlap of where one picture ended and the other picture started. There's a little bit of overlap. And using that for people who have an eye for photography, who know how to edit things, they have an eye for that and they're able to very clearly see, well, here's the overlap and they're able to stitch those photos together and create a larger landscape from it, right? Similarly, there are scholars of hadith and scholars of sirah and you know, the students of the companions and so on and so forth who were able to see, okay, his quotation is ending at this point, his quotation is starting a little bit before, this is where it was connected, this is where it was connected. And so there's been a lot of thorough academic work and that's how the khutbah has essentially been presented to us. So I just wanted to mention that just for the sake of the academic integrity. So now I'll actually go through the khutbah and just briefly touch on, you know, what the Prophet ﷺ is addressing. I might comment on a couple of things a little bit more because there are some parts of the khutbah that are very technical and legal in nature. Uh, and even though that was not the way the Prophet ﷺ typically gave the sermon, the khutbah, he addressed a lot of very technical things, but he would address them in conversation with people, teaching people, but the sermon that he would give, like on Friday, the Friday khutbah, would be mostly inspirational and enriching in nature. And it would make a person think and make a person, you know, really reflect. And the objective of that was so that this person could grow from what they heard today in the khutbah. So it is not typical for the Prophet ﷺ to touch on very legal or technical things in the khutbah, but this is not any ordinary khutbah. This is the khutbah and the sermon of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. So based off of that, I might touch on a few things a little bit more, but we will go through it. The Prophet ﷺ began by praising God um, and establishing... Uh, test, uh, testifying as to the oneness of Allah um, and, and stating the belief of Muslims as the Prophet ﷺ would always do in his formal addresses. It's referred to as khutbatul haja. The Prophet ﷺ would always begin with this formal introduction. He says, Alhamdulillahi, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nastaghfiruhu wa natubu ilayhi. He says, the ultimate praise is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All praise is for Allah. We praise Him, we seek His assistance, and we seek His forgiveness. وَنَتُوبُ إِلَيْهِ And we repent to Him. وَنَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِن شُرُورِ أَنفُسِنَا وَمِن سَيِّئَاتِ أَعْمَالِنَا He says that we take refuge with Allah from the evil of ourselves and from the... Uh, or the consequences of our bad or ill deeds. مَن يَهْدِ اللَّهُ فَلَا مُضِلَّ لَهُ وَمَن يُضْلِلْ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ Whomsoever God has guided 
has given guidance to, then nothing can mislead or misguide that person. And whomsoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed to be misguided, then there's no, no one or nothing that can guide that person. وَأَشْهَدُ أَن لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَحْدَهُ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ And he goes on to say that I testify, I bear witness, that there's absolutely nothing, no one, worthy of worship except for Allah alone, and he has no partner, and that Muhammad is indeed the slave of Allah and the messenger of God, referring to himself. Sometimes uh, folks will ask me, the Prophet ﷺ trying to understand how he's referring to himself in the third person that way, well, the way to understand that even though the Prophet ﷺ did not normally speak that way, by the way, right? Even we in our culture have a certain impression of uh, someone who might refer to themselves in the third person quite frequently. And the Prophet ﷺ did not do that. He would speak in the first person, right? Ana, inni. He would normally speak. I was just uh, looking over a particular narration where the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Man, man yadmanu anni dini. And then he goes on to say that وَيَكُونُ مَعِيَّ فِي الْجَنَّةِ وَيَكُونُ خَلِيفَةً فِي أَهْلِي The Prophet وسلم, he's speaking in the first person. He says, who will take the responsibility of carrying this religion on after me? Who would want to be with me in paradise? Who wants to look after, look after my family after I am gone? Look over my family after I am gone. He didn't say who wants to look over Muhammad's family when Muhammad is gone. No, he didn't speak in third person. He speaks in the first person. The reason why in this particular, the introduction of the khutbah, the Prophet ﷺ speaks in the third person, refers to himself as Muhammad, is because the Prophet ﷺ isn't just giving a khutbah. He's also teaching us on how to give khutbah. He's teaching us on how the khutbah is given. That whenever we start the khutbah, we begin with the formal introduction. And we always mention our belief in the oneness of God and our faith in the prophethood of Muhammad wasallam. So that's what he's also teaching us. Anyways, the Prophet continues on. He says, أُوصِيكُمْ عِبَادَ اللَّهِ بِتَقْوَى I exhort you, I... I strongly encourage you, I emphasize upon you, O slaves of God, to be mindful and conscious of Allah. And I strongly encourage you to be obedient to Allah. And I begin with that which is good. He then says, Amma ba'du. As for what follows, it's again kind of a formal transition from the introduction to the actual now content of the message. He says, Ayyuhannas, O humanity. And you can start to now hear the tone of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, the Prophet ﷺ, whenever he speaks, he's speaking for all of humanity. But he's emphasizing that point here by addressing all of humanity. Because of how monumentous this occasion is and how universal this message is. He says, Ayyuhannas, isma'u minni ubayin lakum. Please very carefully listen to me so that I may clarify things for you, I may explain things to you. 
فَإِنِّي لَا أَدْرِي Because I am not certain, I don't know. لَعَلِّي لَا أَلْقَاكُمْ بَعْدَ عَامِ هَذَا فِي مَوْقِفِي هَذَا I might not meet you again after this year at this particular place and juncture. He goes on to say, أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ O people, إِنَّ دِمَاءَكُمْ وَأَمْوَالَكُمْ وَأَعْرَادَكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ حَرَامٌ إِلَىٰ أَن تَلْقَوْ رَبَّكُمْ He says, O oh people, listen. Your, your blood, which refers to the lives of people. Your lives, your property. وَأَعْرَادَكُمْ And your dignity. And he's using the plural, which basically means better translated into English. It is better translated as the life of every single person amongst you. The property of every single individual amongst you. And the dignity of every single one. Haramun is forbidden. Is forbidden. Is sacred. Is another translation. But what does that mean still? Because it still sounds a bit cryptic in English. What does it mean for something to be forbidden or sacred in this instance? It basically means that this is something that you are not allowed to encroach upon. You're not allowed to violate it. You're not allowed to approach it. You're not allowed to lay hands on it. Literally or figuratively. Because the dignity of people can be compromised with the tongue. So literally or figuratively, you don't touch it. You stay away from it. People's lives, people's property, and people's dignity. Until you die. Now that's kind of obvious, right? Obviously, who hurts somebody after they're already dead. Not, I'm not talking about how do you hurt somebody after they've already died. I mean, if I, how, do, how can I harm anyone after I have died? After I'm dead, I can't harm anybody. So why would the Prophet ﷺ clarify that it's forbidden on you until you die? This type of a statement in the Arabic language is for emphasis. Meaning until your last breath leaves your body, don't you dare ever... Lay a finger, lay a hand, raise your, open your mouth, target with your tongue, any person. Their life, their property, and their dignity. Until your last breath leaves your body. Nothing else, this is the thing you got to be mindful about. He says, just as the sacredness of this day, similar to it is as sacred, this injunction is as important and sensitive as the sacredness of this day, in this month, and in this place. And again, what does that mean comparing it to the sacredness of the day, the place, the month, and the place? So what is the, in one other narration, the Prophet ﷺ actually engages in a Q&A, kind of involves the audience. He asks them, what kind of a day is today? And they say it's sacred. What kind of a month is it? And they say sacred. What kind of a place is this? And they say sacred. And then he tells them that the life, the dignity, the property and the dignity of every person is as sacred as this day and this month at this place. And what that basically means is try to imagine, I'm going to give you a scenario and think about this scenario. Try to imagine someone at the place of Arafat during Hajj. In that month, which means you're in Ihram, Al-Ashurul Hurum is a month of Hajj. You're in Ihram. On that day, the day of Arafah, which many refer to as the most sacred day of the entire year, 
It is the most virtuous day of the year. Somebody might be thinking about, well, what about Laylatul Qadr? That's the most virtuous night of the year. The scholars say the most virtuous day of the year is Yawm Arafah. So think about that. On that day, in Ihram, at that place, can you imagine someone doing something very evil over there? Can you imagine that? Can you even fathom that? Somebody being disrespectful, evil, right? At that place, in Ihram, during Hajj, at Arafat, on that day? It's unfa- And he's saying, فِي يَوْمِكُمْ هَذَا Some of the commentators said, he's not just talking about, can you imagine someone doing something bad? At Arafah, during Hajj, in Ihram, on the day of Arafah. Can you imagine someone doing something evil, bad, disrespectful, at the place of Arafat, in the month of Hajj, in Ihram, on the day of Arafah, during the Hajj of the Prophet Like if you were transported back in time, and you're doing Hajj with the Prophet he's in front of you, you can see him. Can you imagine being disrespectful or doing something evil there? Unfathomable. The Prophet ﷺ said, well, just as that is unfathomable to you, it is just as unfathomable, incomprehensible to me, the Prophet ﷺ is saying to him, that somebody would violate the life, the property, or the dignity of another human being. Think about the, the magnitude of that statement. And then... He says, وَإِنَّكُمْ سَتَلْقَوْنَ رَبَّكُمْ You shall soon meet your Lord. فَيَسْأَلُكُمْ عَنْ أَعْمَالِكُمْ And he will ask you, he will question you about your deeds. وَقَدْ بَلَّغْتُ And I have told you. I have told you. I have conveyed this message to you. فَمَنْ كَانَتْ عِنْدَهُ أَمَانَةٌ فَلْيُؤَدِّهَا إِلَى مَنِئْتَمَنَهُ عَلَيْهَا So whosoever from amongst you has been entrusted with something by someone, then they should fulfill the trust of that person. Someone's trusted you, don't you dare violate that trust. The Prophet ﷺ goes on to say, and this is a very important issue, but a little bit of a technical issue, but it's a very important issue. He says, He said, from this day forth, Usury, interest, is forbidden, is off limits, is outlawed, banned, Islamically. وَلَكِنْ لَكُمْ رُؤُوسُ أَمْوَالِكُمْ However, what he's saying, you still are owed the money that was borrowed from you. And allow me to explain with an example what he's saying, since it's a technical issue. If I borrowed $100 from Ahmed, and he said, pay me back in a month, but when you pay me back in a month, you'll owe me $125. He lends me 100 bucks for a month. When I pay him back in a month, he says, you owe me 125 That's usury, that's interest. That's charging money on money. It's not allowed. That's what he's saying is forbidden. But by abolishing interest and usury, he's saying you still are owed the money that was borrowed from you. That doesn't mean he abolished our entire contract. He did not void the entire contract. He just voided the clause that had the interest built into it. But I still owe Ahmed $100 at the end of the month. That's what that means. لا تظلمون ولا تظلمون. 
You will no longer be allowed to oppress other people through this type of extortion and predatory financial practices. Nor will any wrong be done to you, meaning, Ahmed, you still get your $100. No wrong will be done to you. Then he says, وَقَدَ اللَّهُ أَنَّهُ لَا riba." And God has decreed that there will be no more interest in usury in the Islamic framework going forth. وَإِنَّ رِبَا عَمِّي الْعَبَّاسِ بْنُ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ مَوْضُوعٌ كُلُّهُ And then the Prophet ﷺ had a remarkable practice. All the Prophets and Messengers of God had this sunnah. The tradition of the Prophet ﷺ was, he used to lead by example. He would lead by example. So the Prophet ﷺ, you know, some people could have objected. Let's say before this injunction was made, Umar, Ahmad, Khalid, all three of them owe me, you know, $100, $100, $100. And I had put $25 worth of interest, 25% interest, in all three of their contracts. So now, okay, fine, I still get my $300 back, but I just, when I made that decision to loan them my money, instead of using it in business to make more money, legitimately, but I had loaned it to them, I loaned it because I was under the impression I'm going to make more money by loaning them money. I just lost out $75 that I was expecting on making. So I'm upset. When the Prophet ﷺ gives this injunction, somebody could have been very upset by this. That that's, a, that's a hard, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Like of course I'm going to do it, but it's still a bitter pill to swallow. It's hard. It's not easy. So the Prophet ﷺ would always lead by example, so that no one could ever say, easier said than done. Right? When somebody gives you advice, right, you're, you look at them sideways sometimes, it's easy for you to say. You don't have to do it. You don't, you're not in my shoes. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ would always lead by example. But obviously the Prophet ﷺ had never taken or given in a penny, an ounce of interest ever in his life. So he didn't have any interest to forgive. So he said, I will, I will start by abolishing all the interest that might be owed to my uncle Abbas from the loans that people owe him. I will start with my own uncle. So while I don't have any interest bearing loans, my uncle does and that's close enough. He'll feel the pain. I'm, I'm his relative, I have to help him out. So that way indirectly I feel the pinch of that. But I'll start with him. And you know what? That day, some of the commentators they mentioned, that day Abbas lost so much money. Because Abbas, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the uncle of the Prophet before Islam, was a very wealthy man. And he was a very prominent leader in the community. And he was a good person, he was a generous person. It was just the fact of the matter was the standard contract before Islam would always have interest built into it. So there were people who owed him what we would consider the equivalent of millions of dollars. People in Mecca owed him millions. And there were at least hundreds of thousands worth of, like the, the equal of the equivalent of, excuse me, hundreds of thousands of dollars that were owed to him in just interest payments. And when the Prophet forgave all that, he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars that day. But he started with that. And this, just as a side note, to expound upon it, the Prophet why is he, somebody could say, why is he addressing this in the khutbah? Biggest 
one of the last final main addresses of his life. And he's talking about you know, financial stuff. Oh, but that financial stuff is so important. So important. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about this in the Quran. Allah. It's a sign of your consciousness of God. One of our teachers always used to say that, you know, even the most religious and best and knowledgeable of people, when it comes to money, they all get weak in the knees. They all get weak in the knees. They all, you know, their hand shakes and trembles a little. That's a tough thing to manage, right? Because of just the, the, the temptation, the desire, the nafs, the self. It, want, it craves money, wealth. And so it's very hard to leave, quote-unquote, money on the table. So it's very hard. Secondly, this creates animosities between people. The Prophet ﷺ talked about this in multiple narrations. For instance, when he said, لا يبيع أحدكم على أخيه. He said that you should not undercut each other's business deals, sabotage each other's businesses, because he said that this will create animosities amongst you. And so it divides the community, and it also exposes a weakness in a person's convictions and faith and spirituality. I always recall this, where one of the great scholars, prolific scholars of Islam, Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, rahimahullah, he, his students asked him one time, he wrote many, many different works on history, on beliefs, on law, on hadith, so many things. So they said one of the topics that you have taught us that is profoundly beneficial is spirituality, purification of the heart. How to be a good person. How to be closer to God. But you haven't written a book on it. And he said, no, I have written a book on it. So we don't recall such a book. And he said it's called Kitabul Buyur. It's the book about the rules of financial transactions in Islam. Because if you can abide by, you can be ethical in your financial practices, then you're a truly God-fearing person. And there is, and I'll just spend a minute on this, there is a very, very unfortunate um, cliche in our community where there is this contradiction that exists within some people and many people are turned off by it where someone will have you know, a certain uh, adherence or a certain representation of religion within their lives, particularly in the realm of appearance and worship and things like that. But they remain very and extremely unethical in how they do business. And that's become a very unfortunate cliche in our community. That all oh, these religious types, they're crooks, right? And while that's a generalization that is not fair, but at the same time, it's very tragic that that example even exists within our communities. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ talked about it here. The Prophet ﷺ, he then said, وَإِنَّ كُلَّ دَمٍ كَانَ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ مَوْضُوعٌ The other thing that exists in all societies and communities, but particularly in the Arab at that time, the Arabian society, the Arab society, it was very, a really big issue, and that was the tribal loyalty, affiliation, identification was very dominant. And because of that, what would basically happen is that if 
a man from my tribe killed a person from Brother Omar's tribe, then that was now kind of a grudge that continued on. First of all, extended to everyone else in the tribe. So I must begrudge Brother Omar at that point. He is my enemy, even though he's never done anything wrong to me. In fact, it could be quite the contrary. We could actually be friends. But now I must take him as an enemy. And he must see me as an enemy. And this would continue on for generations. So the Prophet ﷺ said here that, of course, in al-Islam yahdimu ma kana qablahu, that's not just spiritually, that Islam eradicates what came before it. That doesn't just mean that your sins are forgiving, meaning that a lot of these different loyalties and divisions and grudges and things like that, these also have to be eradicated once you come into Islam. We can't stay stuck in those previous grudges. So the Prophet ﷺ said, I'm pressing the reset button today. That if my tribe and Khalid's tribe has been fighting for a hundred years, now you're in Islam, I don't care how long y'all have been fighting for. From this day on forth, y'all are brothers and sisters. You're part of a community. You are the ummah. And you will, fi- you will get over this. You will find a way to get past this. وَإِنَّ كُلَّ دَمٍ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَةِ مَوْضُوعٌ It's done. I don't care who killed who previously. That doesn't mean obviously somebody's wanted for murder and they're running around and we're like, oh, never mind. They're not, we're not going to prosecute them even though we have evidence and all that. That's not what we're talking about. It's talking about the grudges that resulted, as a, uh, that, that came from it. وَإِنَّ أَوَّلَ دِمَاءَكُمْ أَضَعُوا دَمَعَامِرِ بْنِ رَبِيعَةِ بْنِ الْحَادِثِ بْنِ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ and again, subhanAllah, the Prophet ﷺ started with family. He said, the first grudge that I will settle is that one of the family members, one of the second or third cousins of the Prophet ﷺ, from Banu Abdul Muttalib, basically an extended family member of his, a relative of his, who had been killed, who had been killed. And the, in the tribe that he had been killed by, that had led to a grudge that had lasted for decades. The Prophet ﷺ said, again, I'll start with my own family. I'm settling that grudge today. They're not our enemies. They are our brothers and sisters. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, فَهُوَ I start with my own family. وَلَعَمَدُوا قَوَدٌ وَشِبْهُ لَعَمَدِ مَا قُتِلَ بِالْعَصَى وَالْحَجَرْ وَفِيهِ مِيَا بَعِيرٌ فَمَنْ إِزْدَادَ فَهُوَ مِنَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ He then mentioned um, something else. He said that all the previous, kind of reiterating, so therefore all the previous affiliations that you had before Islam, I'm, I'm an ally of Brother Umar's tribe, and we're both enemies of Brother Ahmed's tribe, and Brother Ahmed's tribe is an ally of Khalid's tribe. So therefore, my tribe is also enemies with Khalid's tribe. And all these factions and divisions, he said, all of that is done today. You are one Muslim ummah. That's done. He said, the only affiliations that will continue on after today is affiliations that are rooted and connected to good deeds. And he specifically mentioned Sadana wa Siqaya. Sadana is to be caretakers of the house of God. And Siqaya is to give water to the hujjaj. To give water to people who come to do hajj. 
Those should be the only affiliations you have. Oh, that, you know, we, we try to do humanitarian work. Or we try to memorize the Qur'an. Or we try to bring the community together. Like your service for the deen, for the religion, for the community should be your affiliation. That's what should connect you together now. Then the Prophet ﷺ gave another technical ruling, which again I'll mention very briefly because it's very technical in nature. He said, وَلَعَمَدُ قَوَدٌ If a person deliberately murdered someone, if one person deliberately, intentionally murdered, killed another person, and was either caught red-handed or evidence or confessed to it, then if the evidence is established and the person is prosecutable, the person is mukallaf, they're sound of sound mind, insane, etc., then the punishment is capital punishment. It is death. But then the Prophet ﷺ said, وَشِبْهُ الْعَمَدْ مَا قُتِلَ بِالْعَصَى وَالْحَجَرِ وَفِيهِ مِئَةُ بَعِيرٍ But then the Prophet ﷺ said, but if somebody died as a result of negligence, it was an accidental death, it was an accidental death, and you were responsible for their accident, like you weren't trying to kill them, but you are responsible. And he gave the example, for instance, if somebody got killed with a stick, or got killed with a rock. A couple of examples is that two people are, got in a fight, in altercation. Nobody pulled a knife or a gun, but they, were just, they just got into a shoving match. One person shoves the other, the person falls back, hits their head on a rock and dies. Well, yes, that is problematic that they were fighting, but there was no intention of killing the person. That is called qatul khata. That was an error. That was, a, that was an error in judgment. And for that, the Prophet ﷺ said, you are responsible for paying reparations to the family of the deceased. And that is a hundred camels. And a hundred camels, you know, even... Even if we go based off of the price of camels today, a very low price for a camel today is about $1,500 in Saudi Arabia. Not here. God knows how much it would be here. But in Saudi Arabia, it's in the Arabian Peninsula, it is $1,500 at the very least. So a hundred of that, so it's over $100,000, $150,000. It's a lot of money. So it's a pretty hefty fine. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, فَمَنْ إِزْدَادَ فَهُوَ مِنَ الْجَاهِلِيَةِ Then, but if you try to extort more money from the person who was involved in the killing, they paid $150,000, but then somehow you're trying to extort more money from them, the Prophet ﷺ said, then I can't vouch for you. Then you're, doing, you're, you're, you're crossing the line. And that's from Jahiliya. I do not vouch for you. That covers about half of the khutbah. As I said, obviously, it's very profound, it's very beautiful, it's quite remarkable. Um, and my personal philosophy is that I prefer quality over quantity. So what we'll do, inshallah, because it's almost time for Salat al-Isha, I want to pray on time, inshallah. So what we'll do is that we'll go ahead and pause here for this session. In the next session, we'll do the second part of the khutbah because there are some very powerful points the Prophet ﷺ makes in the second 
part of the khutbah and I want us to be able to fully discuss them inshaAllah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik, nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfirka wa natubu ilayhi.